Today's episode is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. Overcast. Hello again from scenic Southern Illinois. It's January here. We just had a truly wonderful evening at Bruce Brothers Taproom in Murfreesboro, Illinois. The space was lovely, the audience was lots of fun, and I think a good time was had by all. Our theme for this show is Lights in the Night, which we picked out as this is just about the darkest time of the year for a lot of people in a number of ways. But there are lights and we keep on going. Our storytellers in this half of the show are Elaine Ramsire, Molly Howard Crow, and Joe Hersick, all contributing to one of the finest sets of stories I have ever had the pleasure of being there for. As always, our music is brought to you by the inimitable Tony Baker and Kyle Triplett, and of course yours truly. This is our second official show, and it really makes me happy looking toward the future. We're organizing our next show in April sometime, but if you or anyone you know might like to tell a story with us, please get a hold of our newly minted Facebook page, which you can find simply by searching Your Story South. You can also subscribe to the podcast on the podcatcher of your choice by searching The Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories. All right, on with the show. Ooh. 
Pizza, pizza in a bowl. Uh, that's it. Yeah, man, awesome. Jeez Louise, I am lucky to know such talented people and to call them friends, as always. Uh, so tonight we are doing Lights in the Night is our theme of Your Story South. I've got five wonderful storytellers that I, I just can't wait to have on the stage. One of them is me uh, that you get to hear later. So look forward to that. Uh, another song before we start things off tonight. Oh, but let me get arranged here. neighborhood 
great. And uh, as, as the talent is leaving the stage, leaving me um, here alone, I am. I want to start, first of all, by giving just a little background for me who's new to this. Uh, Your Stories is a podcast that was started up in Chicago that we have brought to Southern Illinois, uh, and we're doing about every three months or so. Our last show was at St. Nick's. Tonight is at Brews Brothers. Thank you very much for lovely Brews Brothers for hosting us tonight. You may have caught on that there is a Blues Brothers theme to the establishment, which <laughs> truly one of the greatest movies to ever feature the great state of Illinois, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy for, for all that. Um, but that said, with your stories... Any kind of story is appropriate. You know, we, we welcome anything. They used to do fan fiction February. People take their favorite characters and run them through their favorite fan fictions. That's all good. But, you know, generally speaking, stories from your own life are usually kind of what we, we lean for here. But there's an important thing for any storyteller tonight or any future um, storyteller is that if you should tell the theme and say it out loud, lights in the night tonight or in any future time, you point at the ceiling when you do so. And that's how you get points. <laughs> All right. Very good. So should that ever come up? But um, I, I want to go. Yeah, what I mean? Yeah, what I mean? Anyway, um, what uh, what I've got? What we've got? First of all, uh, I want to introduce our very first storyteller that I am ecstatic uh, who agreed to come do this with us. Uh, she is the one of the proprietors of Long Branch uh, Cafe and Bakery in Carbondale, Illinois, an establishment that my wife and my family and I love to go to. Um, they've been open for 21 years. Uh, and my goodness, the impact they have on their community. It is, it is so fun whenever people who are not from Illinois will ask me, have you heard of Long Branch? I was like, yes, I have. Of course I have. Uh, one, one of my attendings in residency up in Peoria specifically would point out, says, when you go back home and you settle, you make sure you check out the Long Branch. Like, buddy, I've been there. Like, that's, that's, that's old news. But if I could welcome to the stage Elaine Ramsire. Mama was a red clay, shit-kicking, sexed-up Georgia cracker. And Daddy was an out-of-control Swiss blue blood with movie star looks and money to burn. They met in a bar in Baltimore, both on the run. Mama from the bone-crunching poverty of her youth and Daddy from the soul-crushing constraints of Swiss culture. Their backgrounds could not have been more different, but in one very important way, They were just alike. They were both wild as deer, and together they were a neutron bomb that produced three kids in three years. (laughs) It didn't last long, though, and when I was three, my parents divorced, and we came back from Switzerland where we'd gone for the geographic cure so favored by alcoholics. Mama blew her $20,000 divorce settlement on a fancy boat ride back to the States. As soon as we got back, she stuck us in the Tulsa Children's Home and went back to the bars. Aunt Trudy sprung us out of there after six months, and it pissed Mama off, so she took us back. And we bounced around from husband to husband and town to town until Mama met a guy who had a penchant for the road and we piled our clothes into a two-tone green and white 59 Ford Galaxy and drove off into the night. (laughs) Mama and Joe in the front seat, and my brother and sister and me in the back. I was seven, my brother was eight, 
and my sister was nine. That car ride lasted two years as we made a big circle through the country, driving first through the Plains states, down the Pacific coast, looping through Texas, and then into Florida. We finally wound our way up to Mounds, Illinois, which is where Joe was from. So how I got to Southern Illinois is not very glamorous, although you wouldn't know it by looking at me now. <laughs> it was the tail end of the Oakey Dust Bowl. You've seen the Dorothea Lange photographs, poor people on the road, looking for work, looking for a handout, captive in a system of abuse, sustained by the fleeting pleasure that alcohol can bring, the promise of a new day, and what's waiting just over the next hill. Living out of the car, we sold things door to door. Mama sold a big fat book of children's fairy tales, a set of encyclopedias, and subscriptions to Parents Magazine. I credit her with single-handedly keeping parents on the shelf today. It was a new magazine, and she sold subscriptions door to door nationwide. I saw the whole country lying in the back window of the car reading. This was before they made you wear seat belts. If I had access to a library, I gravitated to dense classics like Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Not that I could understand it, I, I think the attraction was that it was thick and that was somehow comforting. To this day, I keep books and magazines in the car just in case. Mama's answer to daycare was to work one side of the street while my brother and sister and I worked the other, selling seed packets and greeting cards that we'd ordered from the backs of comic books. I can't remember ever sending the company the money. I had a lisp then. Even though I've worked hard on it, I still have a little one, especially when I'm nervous, like right now. So here I was, seven years old, knocking on doors. Would you like to buy some seeds? I was pretty good at sales. Mama kept her eye on us as we went in and out of houses. Meanwhile, Joe laid up drunk in the ne nearest tavern, and after work, we'd join him. Because they were readily available in bars across the country, 7-Ups and Slim Jims were the mainstay of our childhood diet. When Mama and Joe rolled up to some roadside tavern for a long night of drinking, the three of us kids would make a night of it as well. We knew this was going to take some time, so we'd hunker down and, and make the best of it till we got so tired we'd, we'd keel over in a red plastic booth that smelled like somebody's butt. <laughs> Old men would give me and my sister quarters to play the jukebox. Robert Mitchum's Thunder Road was our favorite. It was a song about a son who, who runs moonshine for his dad and dies in a car wreck trying to outrun the cops. Now let me tell the story, I can tell it all, about the mountain boy who ran illegal alcohol. His daddy made the whiskey, son, he drove the load. When his engines roared, they called the highway Thunder Road. 
Sometimes into Asheville, sometimes Memphis town. The revenuers chased him, but they couldn't run him down. Each time they thought they had him, his engine would explode. He'd go by like they were standing still on Thunder Road. And there was thunder, a thunder over Thunder Road. Thunder was his engine, and white lightning was his load. And there was moonshine, moonshine to quench the devil's thirst. The law, they thought they'd get him, but the devil got him first. Roads, alcohol, and car wrecks were something we could identify with. My sister and I would rock and roll on the cracked linoleum floor lit by the glow of the jukebox. We had all our little moves worked out. Even now at a wedding reception, we can swing right into it. Seven Ups and Slim Jims fueled our childhood evenings. We'd, we'd stand at the bar and order them, just like adults ordering drinks. And we would wait. And wait. And wait. And wait. We would wait until Mama and Joe were, were good and drunk and had spent all the money and were ready to pile back in the car. Then we'd light out on the wrong side of the road, careening towards a destination unknown, Headlights chaotically piercing the black night. <laughs> Even though we were really scared in the car, we rarely made a sound because we didn't want to get a whooping. And besides, we had already worked out a plan to save Mama if we'd gotten a wreck. Why, we'd throw a coat over her just before impact. When Joe got too tired to drive, we'd pull off the road and we'd sleep. We had our clothes piled on the floorboard, which made the back seat kind of like a little bed. No sheets or blankets, just, just a coat to pull over you if you got cold. The same one we were going to save Mama with. I was small enough to fit in the back window, so often I slept up there. It was kind of like having my own little room. Many a night I would awaken because of the cold. My, my hips would ache miserably from the dampness that had descended and was, was lying in a pattern on the glass just, just over my face. And I, I'd crawl down to join my brother and sister for warmth. To this day, if I get cold at night, I awaken with my hips aching and a flood of memories washes over me. Mama and Joe in the front seat, the world filled with pink mist, not knowing where we are. Beauty and softness mixed with despair. Sometimes we'd go to churches and ask for help. A church generally provided a home for the pastor right next door, so pastors were easy to find. Mama always took one of us kids with her. It's easier to get money if you have a child with you. And she'd go right up and knock on the front door. We were used to knocking on front doors. The lady of the house would let us in and and we'd sit with the pastor, and in hushed tones, Mama would tell him our hard luck story. We're, we're just passing through on our way to fill in the name of the next town. And we're, we've got jobs waiting, and we just need a little money for, for food and gas. 
the pastor almost always gave mama five or ten bucks right there on the spot. Sometimes we'd even get food or, or, or presents that they just seemed to have right on hand. We were in and out of there in a, just a matter of minutes, and then, then we'd pile back in the car and head for the nearest tavern. When we first started out asking for money, we only asked at Baptist churches. But after a while, things got so bad that we even asked the Catholics. <laughs> one time during one of these interactions, a, a Catholic priest asked me if I had taken blah, blah, blah. I had no idea what he was asking me. Although, looking back, I think it must have been catechism or communion. I looked at my mama, and she gave me that look that said, of course you have. <laughs> yes, I stammered as I looked down at my shoes, and the priest smiled approvingly and gave me a stuffed penguin as a gift. Even though I really loved that penguin, I always felt guilty when I looked at it because it reminded me that I had lied to a holy person. Those, those couple of years living out of the car really affected my school life. Lots of times we didn't even go to school. I, I kind of felt bad for the kids that had to go all the time. Or we went for a few weeks and then we'd leave town unexpectedly and then we wouldn't go again for a while. We never knew when we were leaving town it, it probably occurred off and around rent time. We'd come home from school and, and they'd say, get in a car. But, but Mom, I can't. I, I left my koala bear in my, my desk at school. I took it for show and tell. And they'd say, well, just get in. There was no arguing with them. That was it. It was time to go. When we did go to school, Mama would march right in there with us always on her own timetable. She had the brusque manner of a woman with better things to do. We'd shuffle into the principal's office feeling uncomfortable and, and staring at her hands while Mama did all the talking. Bobo and I were in the same class, and Nisi was one year ahead of us. They'd both been held back a year when we came back from Switzerland because their English wasn't so good. We'd walk down the hall to the new classrooms like prisoners walking to cells. I so did not want to enter that room. I did not want to face those children. I did not want to feel their eyes on me. I, I was ashamed of the way I looked. I had two dresses, a yellow one with a white collar that I wore Mondays and Tuesdays, and a plaid one with a dropped waist that I wore Wednesdays and Thursdays. And then on Fridays, I would bust out the Monday-Tuesday dress again. I felt horrible about myself reeling inside from witnessing adult behaviors that should never have been and would never be talked about. Hungry, beat down, dirty, abused, ashamed, ashamed, ashamed. Shame was the overriding feeling I would carry for decades, not ashamed of them, ashamed of myself, as if I were to blame for their depravity. It was excruciating walking into a new classroom, having the principal waltz me up in front of the teacher and 35 kids. Everyone stared at me, wondering where the hell I came from looking like that. And as I hung my head, I, I connected with a rage inside. 
I knew I was smart, and I had spent all that time reading in the car, a lot more time than any of those kids had. I knew that to them, I was a nobody, maybe less than a nobody. But after I'd whooped their asses at multiplication tables and had my penmanship up on the wall, I'd be a somebody. They'd sure the hell know who I was then. Thank you. Go ahead and let, let set the mark there. Yes, that's what we're looking for here on Your Story South. Jeez, Elaine, thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Um, I, I have nothing to add to that. Uh, growing up and being a child is hard, especially if you're not even in charge of your own life and the decisions you get to make. Um, man alive, that's... Can't wait to listen to that again. Uh, <laughs> Let's go ahead and roll on. Um, I want to introduce our next storyteller, uh, who my intro for her is that my, my daughter, my beautiful four-year-old daughter, Evelyn, Evie, as we call her at home, she is gregarious and wonderful, and Nikki and I just, we, we, we're not even looking to have a third child because it's going to be a step down from Evie. She, she, two is, it's like, this is great. We're, we're happy here. Gregarious and outgoing. She has started preschool this year, okay? She goes two days a week. And within the first few weeks of coming home, she has talked about her friends. She's making friends. And she's made two particular friends that she will not stop talking about. Gus is one of them. And Gus is wonderful. He's a, a little bit older than she is, but they play together constantly. It's so cute to watch them play together. And the other one is Floyd. And she loves Floyd with a passion. Uh, <laughs> I actually didn't meet Floyd for a few weeks into school this year. And when, when I, I finally got to meet him, it's like, oh, you, you must be the one I hear so much about. Um, anyway, Floyd's mom. Uh, <laughs> come on up. This is Molly Howard Crow, and I am delighted. Uh, she is uh, someone I, I love watching on Facebook. Uh, might, might be qualified as what's known as a shit poster. And I love, I love the things that you post. So take it away. Yeah. I think I have a sinus infection, so hopefully you can understand me. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time traveling between Carbondale, Illinois, and the St. Louis metro area. My dad lived in Carbondale in the southernmost part of the state, and my mom moved around to different towns in the metro east before eventually settling down in the city proper. Every weekend, my parents would drive me back and forth so I could spend the weekends with my mom. I didn't mind the drive, mostly. I spent a lot of time staring out the window. One night, when I was about 10 years old, my dad and I were on our way home. It was a dark, clear night, but my memory is cloudy. All I know is that I saw something unusual in the sky, and my dad didn't. It was probably just something from Scott Air Force Base, he said. I wasn't so sure. It was a UFO, I insisted. <laughs> Well, I guess any flying object that hasn't been identified is a UFO, my dad said. <laughs> Ten years later, I'm driving the same stretch of road. My boyfriend, Zach, is sitting in the passenger seat. It's a dark, clear night. We've just crossed the bridge over the Mississippi River from St. Louis back into Illinois, heading east on Interstate 64. We're approaching Caseyville, where a round hill springs out of the flat river plain to rise us up into Fairview Heights. My gaze is drawn to the top of the hill, 
pulled by the straight shot of road ahead of us. And then, high in the sky, above the hill, two points of light. At first they look like stars, only brighter. But then they move, suddenly, together. Holding my hand up to the sky, they're fingers width apart, but they're moving together, like there's an iron bar connecting them, tumbling through space in unison. They move down to the left, over to the right, down to the left again, and then they disappear. In half an instant, zipping back into space in opposite directions, one going north, the other going south. Whoa, I say at the same time that Zach says, holy shit. We both try to process what we just saw. What the fuck was that, he asks. I don't fucking know, I say, as if he really expected me to have an answer. I tell him about what I saw when I was a kid. Their memory was more clear then, I think. How my dad had logically posited that it could be something experimental from Scott Air Force Base, and how I accepted that possibility, but also really think it could be aliens. We kept our eyes on the skies for the rest of the two-hour trip home, but we saw nothing more. I'm a person who likes to look things up, to find more information. I thought that if there was something experimental going on at Scott Air Force Base, that surely other people had reported seeing things. So I googled it, and they had. Quite a bit, actually. One of the stories had gained national and even international attention, so much so so that the Discovery Channel actually made a documentary about it the year that it happened, called UFO Over Illinois, Anatomy of a Sighting. You can stream this online for free, by the way. So here's what happened. On January 5th, 2000, which was around the same time as my first sighting in the area, at about 4 a.m., a truck truck driver named Melvern Knoll, amazing name, pulled up to his office in Highland, Illinois, after making some deliveries. When he got out of his truck, he made note of what looked like a very bright star in the sky. He went into the building came out about three minutes later and saw the light again, but this time he realized it was moving. As it got closer to him, he was shocked by what he saw. He describes it as a two-story object the size of a football field. He said it looked like a house with two rows of windows and light shining out of them along the side with dimmer red lights on the bottom. He says that if there had been someone standing in the window, he would have seen them. It was that close. He says he thought... Well, there ain't nobody going to believe me that I saw a flying house go over Highland. (laughs) But he got in his truck, and he drove to the Highland police station anyway. He tells the desk officer what he saw. Says it was heading to the nearby town of Lebanon. They contact regional dispatch. Dispatch sends out an alert asking officers in Lebanon to keep an eye out. Lebanon cop Ed Barton comes on the radio to say, Just a quick question. If I happen to find it, what am I supposed to do with it? Then two minutes later, the same cop radios back in. He sees it. And he has to dispatch to contact Scott Air Force Base. He says he shined his lights at it, and then it banked and moved towards him, and then dashed off towards the next nearby town, Shiloh. Dispatch contacts Scott Air Force Base, as well as St. Louis's Lambert International Airport. Dispatch gets laughed at. They ask if she's joking. They say they have no aircraft in the area, that it's not them. A few minutes later, a cop in Shiloh radios in. He says, I see something, but I don't know what the heck it is. He describes the same object. 
Then a cop from Millstadt, Illinois, Officer Stevens radios in. He also sees the object. He says, it's huge. Dispatch says, does it look like a, what does it look like to you? Steven says, it's kind of V-shaped. He says later, after getting a better look, that it was arrowhead-shaped, and that it was definitely not an aircraft. He also says it was two stories about the size of a football field. He gets his Polaroid out of the trunk of his patrol car and snaps a picture. It's not great. (laughs) It's a black field with three little squiggles of light on it. But still, it's the only physical evidence that anyone collects. He goes back to the police station. He's really excited. He draws a sketch, and he writes an unofficial report. And then a fourth cop, this time from Dupo, Illinois, which I've never even heard of that town, (laughs) says he saw the object above him, but it was huge. We don't get any further details from him. Seems like he didn't want to talk to the media. Which, frankly, is surprising that this many cops were this first coming with their UFO sighting. Um, (laughs) That guy, not so much. And then, if four cops and a truck driver aren't enough witnesses, at 7 a.m., high school English teacher Stephen Wanicut is driving to work. The skies are lightning with dawn, and he sees the object. He gets a good view of it, since there's light now. He says it appeared to be motionless, that it didn't have wings, or a horizontal stabilizer, or navigation lights, or any of the other features you expect to see on an aircraft. He describes it, again, as arrowhead-shaped with three bright white lights along one side and a blinking red light on the bottom. This is the last of the sightings. In the documentary, an official from Scott Air Force Base says the airfield was closed, the control tower was closed, that, quote, no way there could have been an aircraft operating in and out of Scott Air Force Base, end quote. (laughs) He says there is no military explanation for this sighting. But here's the thing. If the military is testing experimental aircraft, they're sure as shit not going to tell us about it, right? (laughs) Oh, you saw that? That was our top secret new stealth technology that's super conspicuous and flying low, very close to a major metropolitan area. (laughs) And that's what I keep thinking. If these are experimental aircraft, why would the U.S. military test them at Scott Air Force Base, which is 35 miles from St. Louis which is a major city with a sprawling extended metro area, and it's right next to Interstate 64. It doesn't make any sense. Some people have suggested that if it is aliens, that maybe they were in the area because they were drawn to the flights coming in and out of Scott or picking up signals from there or whatever. So this was one event, but what about others? Well, there are hundreds in the region. In 2018 alone, there were 102 sightings in southern Illinois, Reporting to the national, reported to the National UFO Reporting Center. That's all of Southern Illinois. The sightings on January 5th, 2000, were within 20 miles of Scott Air Force Base. My sighting in Caseyville was about 11 miles from the base. So I wanted to see what others near Scott Air Force Base had reported. There are lots of different reports of lots of different sorts of weird flying objects with lots of different sorts of lights and features and movements. But there was one that jumped out to me because it sounded so much like my own sighting. The report is from July 8th, 2018. Someone in Edwardsville, Illinois, which is 30 miles from Scott Air Force Base, reported, quote, seen two vertical circle bright lights moving up towards space at a very high speed until it disappeared in space. Light was brighter than a star, end quote. Sounds pretty much just like what I saw, right? But of course, with hundreds of reports, it should be pretty easy to find one that lines up with what I'm looking for. But still, it fascinates me. What are we seeing up there? Aliens? 
experimental aircraft being tested right out in the open. I don't know. But I can tell you that my eyes will stay trained on the sky, and when someone tells me they saw something weird, I believe them. Thank you. Uh, I love it. I love it. Um, would you believe, Molly, that on the short list of songs that I would have liked to have done tonight that weren't really possible was Concerning the UFO Sighting Over Highland, Illinois by Sufjan Stevens? What a beautiful song about exactly what you're talking about. Uh, so my, my friend Matt Brawley, um, he was driving between Carbondale and Murfreesboro. He said he took the T to go back towards, you know, our area back in upper Jackson County. And he had a light that he could see in the sky and it turned with him. And he swears to whatever powers that be that it followed him all the way until he went right in front of Trico High School and then it took straight off. He says, I don't have an explanation and I have no reason to tell you this story other than the fact that it happened to me. What am I supposed to do? It's like, yeah, he believes it, <laughs> so I'm not believing it. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. Uh, our third and final storyteller in this half is an old dear friend of mine, someone I was just delighted who got a hold of me uh, from when we were announcing that we were going to be doing this show tonight. He tried to make the show in October and uh, he has made it down tonight. And um, this is a guy who was the president of my improv group back in college, uh, so if that tells you anything. Uh, but it just warm and caring. When I was a freshman and I was going through an extreme period of darkness, you know, I went to Champagne and there's, I knew no one, and the, this, literally the college is bigger than my hometown, considerably larger than my hometown, and you don't have anyone to look out for you or let you know in a way that means something that they care for you. Joe did that for me. He, he, just, he, made it, he helped make a home for me and helped me build the groups of friends that I ended up having. Um, but I'm going to welcome Sage, Mr. Joe Hersick. Come on up. So after asking a few logistical questions about my timeline and expected whereabouts, my father paused, and with seriousness in his eyes, he simply said, just remember, nature always wins. I had told him about a backpacking trip that I had planned, uh, and this occurred the summer between my junior and senior years in college. Uh, myself and a group of five of my friends were going to rent a van and drive from Illinois out to northwest Wyoming to meet up with a couple more friends to go backpacking. We allotted two weeks for the trip, and we planned it out that if we drove straight, we could make it there in two days and make it back in two days, so we'd have ten full days of off-the-grid experience. Um, we planned that we would have a driver and a navigator pair and that we would switch off and rotate three times throughout the day. And one of my friends at the time, he was uh, an Eagle Scout. So I figured, well, this guy, he could do this trip with just the clothes on his back. And we paired up and we took the graveyard shift, and, which meant that we would drive after dinner through the night while everybody else in the van slept and switch off in the morning. So I was feeling, feeling confident, feeling good, okay, this, this trip is going to go well. I was also so excited because I grew up in Chicago my whole life. And with all the light pollution and all the, the buildings around you, you don't really get that outdoorsy experience. 
So I went and I researched boots. I rented a tent. I borrowed a, a backpack from my sister who had trekked across Europe. And I even did a little bit of physical conditioning to get myself in shape for this trip. Uh, I also spent way too much money on these prepackaged, freeze-dried camping meals. I'm talking pure Epicurean delight. You know, flavors like chicken and wild rice, beef stew, uh, red bean chili. Uh, by the way, these meals are a great way to warm your tent using gas-powered heat. We found that out uh, during the trip. And so we were set for this trip. And the first night that we took our, our rotation was driving through Minnesota. And there was the mother of all thunderstorms going on. I'm talking whiteout conditions where you can't see the road until the lightning flashes, the lights in the night. And you can tell, it's like a game of, okay, are we safe or are we not safe? Yes, we're in the middle of our lane. Okay, are we safe or are we not safe? Lightning flash, okay, no, we gotta move over. But we made it through there. We made our way through South Dakota, hitting all the major landmarks like Mount Rushmore, Devil's Tower, Waldrug. Is anyone here familiar with Waldrug? Show of hands, yes. Yeah. I, so I know that there's not that many people or, you know, or things to do or see in the Dakotas and that the entire population of both states can probably fit on the island of Manhattan. But well, they're proud of Waldrug. I mean, there are, there are billboards states away that say Waldrug, just one state away. And we counted probably a dozen different vehicles with a Waldrug bumper sticker. So we fell into that tourist trap. It's just this like glorified general store that has a bunch of stuff built up around it. Um, but it was interesting, to say the least. So we eventually reached our destination. And we parked our van at a ranger station, grabbed our gear, and walked to the beginning of the trail. And the way that we had planned is we figure, okay, we'll break the day up in about three or four uh, stints of activity. We'll hike for several miles, we'll stop and rest, take a biological break. We'll hike a few more miles and we'll stop, we'll eat and rest, maybe go on a, a light excursion off and you know, see, see what's around the area and just kind of experience nature. Uh, repeat one or two more times and then we have to set up camp. And this had to be done before nightfall for obvious reasons. Um, so we gather the firewood, pitch the tents, and we take all of our foodstuffs, figure out what we need for the night, and put the rest in what we refer to as a bear bag. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with what a bear bag is, it's not a bag you put your food in as an offering to the you know, local inhabitants out in nature. Uh, it's to keep bears away from your campsite. So we stuffed our bear bag, which is very durable, tied a rope around it, walked off a safe distance from the campsite, threw the rope over the highest branch that we could, hoisted it up, and secured it in place for the night. So that way, bears, with their keen sense of smell, they would be discouraged from trying to get the food. And if they did try, they would be far enough away from the camp and you would be presumably safe. Uh, and this wasn't the only preventative bear measure that we were taking. Uh, we also knew that, like a lot of wildlife, they don't like to be surprised. So you can either carry a bell or carry a whistle, which we had, and we blew it about you know, once every half hour or so, so that you don't surprise them. And if they hear it, you kind of run away. Uh, we also had bear spray, which if a bear does decide to charge, you can spray them, anger them more so that if they're gonna kill you, they get it done with quicker. Um, all this we learned from my friend Aaron, the Eagle Scout. Um, or you can huddle in a group, because they don't want to attack something bigger than themselves. Uh, and all those measures worked. 
unfortunately, you know, enough because I was excited. I'm out here in nature. I'd like to experience some wildlife, not so much as a squirrel, a deer, let alone a bear. Uh, but this is the type of trip where you have all these little experiences that just echo throughout time, they're, whether they're formative or fond memories. Um, and, and they really, they can kind of almost maybe kind of adjust your tra trajectory you know, as, as a human being sharing this time with people together. Uh, but after about two or three days, we, we reached a point on the trail. And you could tell that the trail was not as beaten past this point. It was more densely wooded, and for good reason, because there was a sign telling us why. There's this bright yellow sign with red lettering. And I don't remember the exact wording, but it essentially kind of warned you that beyond this point, there, it's very populated with bears. And so you don't, you know, you want to exercise extreme caution if you're going to continue on this way. My first thought was, well, cool. Like, this is what, you know, roughing it is like, especially out here in the true wilderness. Um, I can't say that the other members of the party shared that enthusiasm as much as I tried to encourage it. Uh, and even Aaron, who was open to the idea, had reservations. So majority rule, we ended up turning around and heading back down the trail uh, from whence we came. And we weren't unsure what we were going to do with our timeline. We thought maybe we'll just take it easy going back, not set as rough of a pace, and just kind of uh, you know, enjoy the outdoors. But we got about two-thirds of the way back, <clears throat> and we stopped at this point uh, where we had to cross a stream. Now, this stream it was maybe only about 10 yards wide, but it was, the water was thigh high, and it was rushing fast enough where if you lost your footing, you could easily get swept downstream. Uh, now, the good news is that you wouldn't go that far because there's a log jam you know, several yards down, so the worst that could happen is you get maybe impaled by a branch or something. But <laughs> we took precautions. There, there, was, there was time to prep. You had to, whatever valuables you had with you that you didn't want to get wet in case you slipped, uh, we tried to waterproof it. Uh, a couple of people went out with, you know, without their gear and strung a rope across, the same rope we used for our bear bag, strung it across so that you had something to hold on to, a little you know, makeshift rail to get across the, the stream. Uh, so we were there and we were preparing to, to go across this. Now, uh, I didn't have the proper footwear for this type of thing. When we crossed this the first time, uh, I just decided to wear my boots. I just had flip-flops with me as alternative footwear, and one of those I lost at a smaller ankle-deep stream further on down the trail. And I, I probably could have caught it if I ran after it, but I had 50 pounds on my back and I wasn't about to you know, lose my footing and fall there. Uh, so I was, I was woefully unprepared for this again. I didn't want to cross in my boots because water gets in, you gotta dry them out all night. Um, and so what I did was, over by where this log jam was, I, I found some branches, I was carrying them over there and trying to set up a makeshift bridge. And I was wasting all of my time during this prep phase to, to do this and eventually everyone said just drop it, we got across. The sun is starting to go down, we got, we'll have to set up camp or you know, whatever we're gonna do. And so I said, okay, so I abandoned my idea, even though I was close to finishing that little makeshift bridge. So I got back to the group and we're all standing around there and one person who went to, to uh, take the string to create the makeshift rail already went across with somebody else and they were waiting on that side. They came back to get a, a pack when all of a sudden we see off to the side where the stream kind of curves around and splits off there's a bit of a hill, and over that hill came a grizzly bear. And it ended up coming close to our group, and we, so we knew the drill, we huddled up, okay? <laughs> Whoever had the spray had the spray ready. And so 
we all just grouped together. And here I was thinking, this is so cool, this is so cool. And I was saying that very softly. And Aaron, my friend, he's saying, like, no, it's not, no, it's not, this is not good news. Thankfully, it was a young grizzly bear, and it wasn't that curious. And it came within about 10 yards of us, and just kind of examined and walked around our group and then headed down the path that we just came from. And it was kind of a straight shot for, well, I don't know, 50 yards or so, and then it curved off. So we all stood there holding our breath, me holding my excitement, until the bear was gone and out of sight. And we waited a little bit to make sure it was really gone. And then we double-timed the prep phase and let's get across and get across, go across the river. Um, so a couple more people got across and you know, a third with them. And we're getting ready to do the final, you know, final group of us to go across the, the stream. When I look down the path, I glance down there and I say, guys, the bear's coming back. And sure enough, this force of nature just starts lumbering down the path. So we huddle in our much smaller group now. The, the folks on the other side of the stream, they huddle together also. And the bear is coming all the way down. And it stopped about within the same proximity of our group that it did the first time. And it starts making this path around near where our, our bags were, what was left on the other side. I thought, oh, great, it's going to tear into the bags. And, and it kept walking. I thought, okay, good, we're safe. And it was making its way towards this little makeshift bridge that I had built across the log jam. Now, it wouldn't be stable enough for, for a human, but the bear was sure-footed and it crossed the log jam. And I think, oh my God, this thing is going to maul my friends. And it's all my fault. <laughs> so thankfully, it got across and avoided them, even though they were starting to back up into the stream. Um, and it went up a hill and off into the woods, never to be seen again that trip. And so... So then we really moved quickly and got across the stream. And normally we would have probably found a spot to, to set up camp, but we made the decision to just push on through, get back to the ranger station and call it a night over there. Away from nature, uh, closer to civilization, away from danger. Which we did. Uh, that whistle got blown more times, I think, in that stretch than the whole trip prior. Um, and we made it there. And we decided, you know, it's late. We don't want to have to worry about pitching a tent or, you know, only one maybe. So we emptied out the van of our, our, our gear and the, the seats, the bench seats, and set it down on the ground there. And this ranger station was at a place where there's this big open field. And out there in the Wyoming, under the Wyoming sky, it was filled with stars. I'm, I'm talking not just, not just the thousands of stars you see out here, Hundreds of thousands of stars. It was amazing. And for a city dweller like me, this was a truly just breathtaking experience. And I was sitting there and, and, and reflecting on the time that we had uh, backpacking and thinking, my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm in sync with nature, going, going to bed when the sun goes down, getting up when the sun comes up. Uh, you're, you're just more relaxed. You're, you're tuned out of the, the world. And here I'm being confronted by the immensity of the universe, these lights in the night. And, and I just had this, this, this connection with, with the natural world that I had never felt before. Um, I wish I could say that this experience launched some kind of career into astronomy. It didn't, but I've dabbled in cosmology. I like to study these things as kind of a hobby. You learn about things like the age of the universe, the history of the universe, black holes, singularities, and... and and, and things where the, the laws of physics just break down, and that kind of is a gateway into things like quantum mechanics and, and things on the very, very small scale. And 
it's interesting to see this connection between those and things on the very, very big scale. And somewhere in between you have humanity. And I would posit that art, music, things that point to beauty are really the only man-made things that, that really kind of raise our minds to transcendence and really kind of put us in sync with, with the world on the very large scale and the very small scale. And there's something to that connection to transcendence and truth that, that really, really speaks to us, makes us come alive, it connects us to things that are of a higher purpose and meaning in life. Um, and I've, I've reflected on that often in all the years past and, and even recently. And it's something that now, not a night goes by if I'm outside, I don't at least try to stop and look up at the sky and see the stars out there. And allow myself to be, made, be, to be made to feel small. It's kind of humbling, but if I feel small, my problems feel small. My difficulties feel small in the grand scheme of things. And at the same time, feeling small, you also feel a part of something larger than yourself and connected uh, to the world out there. And, and sometimes it's a good feeling. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's good to let that in every so often and to really feel it. And so while nature can and will kill you if you don't take it seriously, um, it's also life-giving and life-sustaining. And I think that in that way, yes, nature does always win. Thanks, buddy. That was... Uh, insert bear joke here. Uh, <laughs> my goodness, what like the uh, awesome is a word that we get lost nowadays because things are awesome, tubular, bodacious, gnarly. Um, but you know, awesome, awesome. Like you know, it's bigger than you. It it makes you smaller, but not in a bad way. You know, like the world, the universe is so much bigger than all this. So thank you for sharing. That. So guys, have you come on? Got a song to close out this half uh, with the two finest musicians I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, live, live a little. Live a little. <laughs>
10 minutes, whatever. So. <laughs> this podcast has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash Thanks for listening.